Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Amen, right? Uh, in the morning when I rise... When I am alone, when I come to die, when I come to church, give me Jesus. And I, I pray that's what we do this morning, Jesus 101. <laughs> We're in the Gospel of Acts, as you remember from last Sunday, uh, we saw a bunch of elders get together and ordain Paul and Barnabas and set them out. And uh, so we're now out on the mission field. Many people look at the book of Acts, and one of the things that they'll think of when they think of the book of Acts is missionaries and missionary journeys, especially Paul's missionary journeys. Although we've seen missions already with Philip, with Peter, with John, they're going out according to the, uh, the, the promise that Jesus made that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses, beginning at home in Jerusalem, but going out to the very ends of the earth. And so, we've been tracking this through the book of Acts, and we come to this place in chapter 13 where they prayed, they fasted, they laid hands on, and they sent them out. And first thing they did, they went over to Cyprus, which is where the, the island Barnabas is from. And we remember the story. They encountered this false prophet, uh, Bar-Jesus. And, and Saul, who we find in that chapter, that passage, gets a new name, Paul. And now Paul performs his first miracle and begins taking up leadership amongst the traveling duo, the dynamic duo. As we've been tracking through the book of Acts, we first meet Barnabas back in chapter 4, and he pops in and out and in and out. He's the guy who actually goes and grabs Saul of Tarsus and brings him into the work, brings him up to Jerusalem, introduces him to the apostles, and, and is very instrumental in reconciling people, bringing people together, introducing Paul and promoting Paul. But now, we've seen a, a flip in the way that Paul and Barnabas will be referred to. It used to be Barnabas and Saul, now it's always going to be Paul and Barnabas. And, and hopefully we'll touch on a couple of those points as we go through here. But as you go out onto the mission field, you want to lead with your best foot forward, right? You want to take that person that's been there, done that. And Saul has had a lot of experience out in the world getting her done. And so, Paul leads, and uh, in this encounter, the proconsul Sergius Paulus uh, believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And this, that's what we do. That's why we're here this morning. We're teaching what the Lord has to say. We're opening up God's Word and letting God speak, letting His Word out of the cage. It'll accomplish that which He sent it forth to do. But the the trick, and this is Paul, he's got it down, preach the Word, preach the Word. In season, out of season, be ready, convincing, rebuking, encouraging, blah, 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 blah. Just let her out. And so here we come to verse 13 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts. 
Now, when Paul and his party, this, see what I'm saying about the flip? It's not Barnabas and Saul anymore, it's Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So they left the island of Cyprus. They sailed north across the Mediterranean Sea, and now they have come to the port of Perga on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And they've, they've come to this place, it says, with John Mark. And as you recall, uh, or with John, this is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. But at this point, he's been kind of an assistant, an understudy. Barnabas is his uncle. Mark is Barnabas's nephew, and so he's out on the mission's road working with these two heavy hitters, and uh, he's there. He sees these miracles and, and whatnot. It says, but when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and these are, these are regions or provinces of the Roman Empire, Pamphylia, and John, John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And here the Holy Spirit is rather discreet as to why John Mark left the mission team, why John Mark left the field that he went out on. I can tell you from missions experience, the number one reason that missionaries leave the field is, wait for it, other missionaries. That's, that's a fact. If you, do, you study missiology, I've taught it for many years, I've lived it. The number one reason is because people can't get along, even amongst Christians, even amongst the body of Christ. But in this, we are going to see that God does some really amazing things. Now, it's speculative as to what's going on and, and why this happened this way. In chapter 15, so spoiler warning, if you don't want to know 15 yet, plug your ears. I'm going to explain a little bit of what happened at this parting of the parties. Uh, verse 36 of chapter 15, then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So this is after they finished this first journey. They've came back, they've reported in, they've uh, regrouped, they're going to go out on the second journey, but it tells what happened here. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, who had not gone with them to the work. So you see there's a little bit of difference of opinion and, and goals and focus. Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now, what has happened is that one mission team has become two. In God's economy, He can take whatever we dish up and make it beautiful, right? Beauty from ashes. And, and so, they're going to go out and they're going to cover more ground. And, that, and that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a healthy thing and a holy thing. And I want you to just really quick notice what it says in Acts chapter 15 at verse 40. But he says, Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. The church smiled on this. The brothers commended them 
at a boy. Go for it. Let's do this. And so we recognize you don't work well together, at least not at this juncture in history, but nevertheless, we're still going to bless you. We're still going to send you forward. We're going to watch the work multiply. That's a good thing. And just to kind of even really give you the total spoiler warning, in the book of 2 Timothy, this is the last letter that Paul records just prior to his death, as he's in the dungeon awaiting execution, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, only Luke is with me. Luke is the author of the gospel of Acts that we're reading right now. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So, while the Holy Spirit is rather discreet on all that's gone on, God has a plan for each soul, each individual. As we move around in His kingdom, uh, if we will just follow the Holy Spirit, He'll put you where you need to be. And sometimes that'll cause you to go a different direction. Sometimes it'll, as Paul did, say, hey, I need, I need that guy's help. He's the guy. And so, um, we don't want to prejudge too much of anything that's going on here, but, um, you know, a lot of commentators, right, commentators, people that make commentary, they all have different ideas, and there are some taters that are more commentators than others, <laughs> but they have all different kinds of things they speculate. Was Mark younger, maybe? Uh, he is the nephew. Was he homesick? Maybe just sick, sick. Maybe afraid. If we read Paul's description of his missions and what he endured, go to 2 Corinthians chapter, is it 12, 11 or 12? I can't remember which one right now. He goes through and details all the grief you know, getting stoned, getting thrown in jail, stripes beyond measure, and constantly shipwrecked at sea. And it's like, is that what you want to sign up for? Is that what you think you want to do? I remember when I was courting Cheryl, we're getting to know each other, and uh, the way we had come to know the Lord, we were just baby Christians at the time we were courting, and the people who had led her to the Lord, three months later left for the mission field. And so when we're coordinating, she says, I'm, I'm a new Christian. I know I'm supposed to read the Word, worship, pray, uh, go to church, and go to the mission field because that's the model that I've seen. And I kind of giggled in my heart because I, being a guy that loves to read, especially I love biographies. And so I read about people like David Livingston, even though I wasn't a Christian at the time I read about it. I knew about him. He went to Africa and preached to the continent of Africa. He lived amongst the Africans to the point that when he died, they actually took his heart out and they sent his body back up to England where it was buried, but they buried his heart in Africa because he said his heart is from Africa. But he, 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 got, he, he got the jungle disease, whatever, the crud, right? And he just rotted and died in the jungle. I'm like telling Cheryl, really? You want to sign up for that? That's just silly. And I, I chuckled in my heart. I thought it was silly. <laughs> I think God thought it was silly that I thought it was silly because... As you know the rest of the story, we went to the mission field, and a funny part of that story, those people, Billy and Joel Ross Marino, J Billy who led Cheryl to the Lord, 
when we finally ended up on the island of Negros in the Philippines, in the southern side, south uh, eastern side in Dumaguete, on the northwestern side of that little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in Bacolod was where Billy and Joe Ma Ross Marino had landed their ship, and they had an orphanage of all things on the other side of the island, the same thing that Cheryl and I went to do. So you just don't know what God is going to do in your life. None of us do. I don't know what He's going to do next week, but I do know that whatever it is, I want to do it. Sign me up. You don't know what it's going to be. I know. Sign me up. If Jesus is in it, I want to do it. Just give me Jesus, right? In the morning when I rise, when I come to die, on the mission field, <laughs> just give me Jesus. And so, we've got this going on. Um, and so, we see the party flips, if you will. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. And, and this is something, again, uh, I would recommend in missions work. We've done it so often. As you get out onto the field, you want the most qualified person to be leading, okay? You might be the guy with the diploma. You might be the guy with a church. You might be the person with some wonderful ministry back home, but now you're in um, terra incognito, unknown territory, right? And so, it's best to leave, you know, do you know the language? How about let the person who knows the language lead? Do you know the laws of this new land that you're in? Maybe they should be the one to lead. Do you know how to travel and get around? Can you flag down a pedicab? Can you do the type of things that are necessary to uh, operate in this community? Do you understand the money, the food, how things work? Um, and do you have any prior experience here? You ever been here? You ever done this before? And in Paul's case, he was from Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is just down the coast from Perga. This is an area that he would be familiar with. He'd know the language, he'd know the laws, he'd know the local customs, the food, all of the above. Paul takes the lead, okay? So, it says, uh, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, okay? So, I told you, Perga is a, a port city. It's on the southern coast of Turkey. Today, you would find it there. You head north about 135 miles you get to Antioch, Pisidia. Now, here, it only takes, I don't know, I didn't count the words, six or seven words to journey 135 miles north. But in the middle of all this, you kind of wonder, what's going on? They didn't, you know, in most every place, when they were in Seleucia, they went to the synagogue, they preached to the Jews, they crossed the island, they went to Paphos, they met the proconsul, he came to know the Lord, they go to Perga, and we hear nothing about Perga. And then all of a sudden, they're 135 miles north in Pisidia, uh, or Antioch of Pisidia. Remember where Paul and Barnabas were ordained? Anybody remember? Antioch. This is another Antioch. Remember I told you there were about 16 Antiochs in the Roman Empire in that day, so they would be known as the Antioch from whatever province they were from. This is, happens to be in the province of Pisidia. It's in the mountains. It's about 3,600 feet elevation, and some people have speculated that possibly down on the coastal plains, very marshy area near Perga, malaria, we read from accounts of Jesus' day or the, the book of Acts, malaria was prevalent in that area. Maybe Paul 
got malaria. Maybe Paul got something else. We don't really know, but it is interesting what we do know. Pisidia and Galatia, are they border each other. These are up north in central and northern Turkey. And in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to them. He says in uh, Galatians chapter 4 at verse 13, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first, and my trial was in my flesh, and you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. What then was the blessing that you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, we don't know exactly what all that means, and you can't peg it down to why they left Perga and came to Pisidia, but Pisidia being there in the region of Galatia, in this area that they're now doing in this, quote, first missionary journey, Paul says to the church in Galatia, you know that I came to you at the first because of infirmity. And this is something that we don't a lot of times write into our Christian script, oh, Lord, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Oh, Lord, when I'm alone, give me Jesus. Oh, Lord, I could use infirmity because I need that to move me to where you're taking me. That's not usually any of our, our ideas. And, and so often, and in some families of the church, people would even look upon illness or sickness as some kind of sin in your life that you need to repent of, that somehow you are not well because of something you, are, you need to repent of, right, to, to confess to God. And yet, here God is using, clearly, uh, at least in Galatia, He's using infirmity to bring Paul there. And He says, you would have even plucked out your eyes and given to me. Uh, later on, we're going to see that Paul signs off on one of his epistles. See how I write this with my own hand? Because it was known that he had uh, eye vision problems and whatever it might be, uh, conjunctivitis or some kind of a thing. Malaria has these type of symptoms, can be associated with it. Whatever it was, maybe this is that thorn in the flesh that Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take it from me. And the Lord said, uh-uh, that's my gift to you, that thorn in your flesh. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so, a lot of times, God uses these things, division amongst the team, infirmity, thorns in the flesh, trials, tribulation, challenges. A lot of times, that's part of what God puts in the broth as He's cooking up this beautiful life for you. And so, wherever you're at right now, you might be in one of those trials, those tribulations. You might be going through a hard spell, and it could be very well that this is a gift to you from God. We don't know, but I do know this. Whatever we do, He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us. And so, you can know this. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is walking it out with you, and if you'll just take His hand in whatever it is you're doing right now and let Him lead you, let, Lord, what is it? In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. I know I'm repeating that often, but it's so apropos for what we're doing right here, right? Can you see that? So, this is missionary 101, okay? 
getting out on the field and getting her done. So it says, they departed from Perga and they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. We've already seen, this is the pattern. They would go to the Jews first. They saw this in Jesus, he modeled it for them, and they would go to the Jews. And Jesus would even say, salvation is of Israel. It is the nation of Israel who received the law and the prophets and the promises, the Messiah. They all come through uh, the nation of Israel, and so they would go to people who are anticipating Jesus, looking for Messiah, expecting deliverance to come from God, and looking in the Scriptures to see how that's going to play out. That's the first audience they would go to. You would expect them to be a receptive audience because they've been praying and looking for the coming of their Lord, right? And so this is the logical place to start when you go into town. So But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Okay, now, little background as to how this works. It says in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation or encouragement for the people, say on. Whoa, whoa. That's, a, that's pulling a pin on a grenade and throwing it in the room. Are you really, you want to let Paul talk? Okay, we'll see what happens here. And we know what's going to happen. It's going to be beautiful. But in the ancient world, in, in the days of uh, the book of Acts, if you were to go to synagogue, that's the gathering of the Jews, you would uh, come into, you wouldn't have worship like we had this morning, probably don't have children's ministry, all those different kinds of things. They'd be humble, humble gatherings. They would gather, they would pray. They would have prayers for one another, um, and then they would listen to the teachings. First, they would listen to a passage from the Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then they would listen to a reading from the prophets. And this is just a, the liturgy. It was prescribed each week what they would be reading. They'd come together, read it together. Very few people had a scroll. Very few people had a Bible. They'd come to synagogue to hear it, and then after they had read the law and read the prophets, then they would ask if there's anybody there that could get up and expound upon what we've just heard, explain what we've just heard, help us to have some understanding so that we can apply it to our lives. You might see a pattern like that here in our fellowship. It's kind of how we roll. This is what we're doing right now, okay? But here they've got Paul and Barnabas, and you can imagine, now this is Pisidia, Antioch, okay, 135 miles up into the heartland on the plateau, uh, high plateau in Turkey, far away from Jerusalem, and yet uh, throughout the world of Judaism, everybody would have the habit of coming to Jerusalem for the feasts if they were Jews. And so, without a doubt, there's probably some present here who've had the opportunity, the privilege, the ability to travel to Jerusalem for Passover or, or one of the great feasts. And so, they knew what's going on. They, they knew they had heard about Jesus. That, that had already been spread throughout the world. At the day of Pentecost, there were visitors from all over the world there for the Passover when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, and everybody heard the wonderful works of God in their own tongues from around all these different nations in the world. So, now these guys walk into the synagogue. Now, from archaeology, people have speculated, and from ancient writings, that this 
Antioch of Pisidia was a rather large regional area, regional town, kind of like Twin Falls. In fact, they estimate the population in the whole area was about 100,000. So, pretty big place, okay? But nevertheless, this is a Hellenistic, a Greek culture, Greek society, Roman province, okay? And so, all of the different heathenism really is prevalent in there, but there's Jews there, and the Jews would gather together, and they would have synagogue. And now, these guys, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, are there from Jerusalem. Wow, what an amazing moment. It'd be like right now if I'm standing here and Franklin Graham walks in the door. And you're all like, hey, Mike, um, do you see who that is? Oh, yeah, I see him. Hey, Frank, hey, um, go ahead and have a seat. And you're like, wait a minute, Mike, you have a seat. We want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> One of those kind of things, right? A Greg Laurie or a Billy Graham. If Billy Graham walked into the door right now, I guarantee you I'd sit down. <laughs> but it's one of those moments, right? And so you guys are, you're, you're, you're Pharisees, you're, you're rabbis, you're learned men, you're even from the Sanhedrin. We'd really like to hear if you've got anything to say today, okay? Um, and so, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, can you repeat that after me? Motioning with his hand. Okay, ready? Thank you. I love it. The scriptures defend me. I, some people have made notice that sometimes I use my hands to talk. It's biblical, okay? <laughs> Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So he's got two groups here, right? If you're born a Jew, you're of the children of Israel, uh, you know, I guess you could say born uh, a Jew, or if you are people who fear God, f God fearers. These would be not born Jew, no Jewish grandparents or anything like that, but they've come to love and respect and fear Yahweh God of Israel. They have come under the wing of God, just as we're reading on Wednesday night of Ruth the Moabitess, who attaches herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Okay, these are the God-fearers. They weren't born Jew, but nevertheless, they show up at synagogue because they want to learn. They want to know what God has to say uh, to them. And so, now Paul is going to start talking to them. And just to show you uh, kind of really quick before I get into it, because we're going to have to go through it relatively fast, the next handful of verses, verses 17 all the way on through, I believe it's 41, um, are, are going to be Paul's sermon, okay? And so he's going to give a sermon, but I want to say a couple things about the sermon first, and it'll make it easier for us to all follow along. For one, he's talking to people who know their Scripture. They know their Bible. So he is going to reference the Bible five times. He's going to take direct quotes 
out of their scriptures, but the whole thing from front to back is the history of Israel. He's going to allude to or just describe things that they would all know about what God has done in their life, going all the way back to Abraham, but fundamentally focusing from Moses coming forward to develop this presentation of the gospel, the good news, okay? And so he's working with the Jews. Uh, We'll see later in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, how he goes to Athens, which is full of a bunch of philosophers, and he can't find a Jew in the bunch. So he starts giving the same gospel message, but he changes tactics. Instead of referring to the scriptures and the promised Messiah and deliverer and what God is doing, he'll in Athens use a tactic where he starts off in creation, how God, the creator, the unknown God, he's the one that made us all. In him we live and move and have our being. And he started relating to these non-believers, non-God-fearers on a level they could relate to. And so he would become all things to all people, but by all means, he might win some, okay? But the gospel, it, the heart of the gospel never changes, so I want you to kind of see that. And one other thing I want you to notice in all of this is that Paul, now giving this sermon, the first fully recorded sermon, Luke writes down basically what he said. If you'll notice, he's a copycat. He is saying pretty much everything that Stephen said when Stephen was stoned and Saul was there consenting to his death. And no doubt that impression went with him for the rest of his life. And as Jesus comes to, or I mean as Jesus, as Stephen comes to the conclusion of his message, you wicked and stiff-necked people who killed Messiah, right? And they're all just gnashing at teeth and tearing their garments and picking up stones, and they're going to kill him. Stephen drops to his knees and says, don't charge this against them. And what does he say? I see Jesus standing about to receive me into heaven. I bring that up because that was Stephen's message. You can bring the gospel. There's different ways to bring the gospel forward. But when you're sharing the gospel, if people don't see Jesus, it ain't the gospel. Because that's the heart of the gospel is bringing people to Jesus. Same thing happened in, on the day of Pentecost. And Peter got up to preach, right? And, uh, and that day, 3,000 people were saved. And he went through the history of Israel and how that God sent them the deliverer, and they, they killed him, and you've got blood on your hands. What must we do to be saved? Well, you need to repent and get baptized, get right with God, right? And so in all of these things, the heart of the gospel remains the same. There's different tactics to go about it. And, and Paul fundamentally is borrowing from other preachers, other sermons he's heard, and he's bringing a little bit of his own into it. It's probably the same thing you do after you hear a, a, a message. Maybe it's on the radio, maybe it's here this morning. You go to work and you say, oh, our pastor was talking about this, you say that, and then you start saying some of your own stuff and you mix it together. It's kind of a thing, you know, to, to take somebody's sermon and just repeat it verbatim. That's plagiarism. But 
if you listen to this one and this one and this one and this one and you cobble a bunch of things together and some of those trigger some thoughts in your mind and you throw some of those things in, it's been said when you're making or preparing a sermon, it's like uh, milking a lot of cows and then making your own cheese, okay? And so I say that to you because that's what you're going to do. You're going to be cheesemakers, right? I'm a cheesemaker. I'm just laying it on this morning. This is a little bit of what I have seen and heard and what the others have said, and I just I share that with you because it's a wonderful tactic to go forward. So we're going to get this story of Israel. So we're going to kind of move a little quick through it. You know the story already. It's going to be kind of a refresher course to you, unless you're hearing this for the first time and you're a Gentile and you never heard of Jesus. So verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. With a mighty and outstretched arm, with the power of God, he delivered the children of Israel, their slaves in Egypt. And so we've just covered in one verse, Genesis and Exodus. Verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. There's Leviticus and Numbers. Verse 19, and when he had, I'm sorry, yep, Verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed the land to them by the allotment. Anybody, which book? Joshua, book of Joshua. Verse 20, after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Okay, so now we're moving into judges and Samuel and kings and chronicles. After that he gave them judges about 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they asked for a king, so they gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, and now he's going to quote to them one of the five quotes. This comes from Psalm 89, verse 20. It says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. He's warming up to one of his sub-points as he brings them through a history of the nation of Israel, the source of the Messiah, the promises of God, their deliverance, the good news, the gospel. It comes from here. He brings them up to David, and he, he stops for a minute, and he camps on the idea of King David. It says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What he's building towards here right now, I'm going to give you spoiler warning, is that these people in Antioch of Pisidia at the synagogue on Saturday are going to be challenged to do as David did. What does it say here? David was a man after my own heart who will do my will. Now, these guys are dignitaries, celebrities, right? They're in from Jerusalem, and here they are out in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, Hayburn, Idaho, and everybody's like, wow, we've got, like, dignitaries here, right, up there in Antioch, Pisidia, and they're all impressed. They're from Jerusalem, the big, the big church, the mother church or whatever um, kind of a thing. And, uh, and so they say, we come from a place, and he's going to get into this, where we killed Messiah. But I want you to focus on David. What did David do? David did my will. Well, 
we look at David and we look at the life of David and, and it's, it's quite the roller coaster. It's, it's a grab bag of good, bad, and ugly. In fact, I know a lot of people that really even have a difficult time with David. Now, the children of Israel, they think David's all that in a bag of chips. He's the king of kings, short of Jesus Christ. They don't, the Jews don't believe in Jesus Christ. They're like, he's the king, you know, and they think he's all that. And he did wonderful things for the nation of Israel. If you look at what he actually did, amazing things. You look at some of his failures in life, super embarrassing things. We've had some presidents like that. And, and, you know, it's like, I, you know, do you vote for him because he's a good guy or do you vote for him because he gets the job done? Well, here, David gets the job done. Now, God overlooks all these things. You remember when he first was met uh, by Samuel, uh, one of the, the, the runt, the son of Jesse that nobody wanted, uh, Samuel says to Jesse about David, he says, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for a man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, that's, that's good advice for you and I. I can't really know what's going on in your heart. I can see your outward appearance, and sometimes, you know, we do judge each other on that, good, bad, or otherwise. But we have to understand that as a child of God, chosen of God, whether you're Barnabas or Saul or Paul or John Mark, God has a plan for your life. And I don't always know what God is doing in your life. You don't always know what God's doing in my life. But we look and see, well, they're at church on Sunday. They're my brothers and sisters. We pray together. We go out and do fun things together. We do life together. Um, I, I call them a brother and sister in the Lord, and I'll stand by them. But are they perfect? <laughs> no, none of us are, right? And so this is kind of that picture. But he brings them to David, who will do all my will. He goes on to say, verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Jesus, okay? This is basically borrowing out of Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12, and then he adds the reveal, right? It's not a gender reveal. It's a Messiah reveal, right? That um, this guy you've been looking for, this guy you've been reading about, this guy that God talks about, this deliverer of Israel, Messiah, Savior, his name? Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing. He's giving them Jesus, right? This is what they need to see, what they need to know. And so he goes to Jesus, verse 24. Um, we're going to switch, and now we're kind of coming into the, the New Testament, if you will, the Gospels and the Epistles. They would not have had these available to them. But as they're speaking them and living them out, and they're going to relate them to Luke, they will be recorded as the book of Acts and as the epistles. And so he's now moving into the New Testament times after John. And this is speaking of John the Baptist, okay? Another celebrity, another heavy hitter. Everybody in the known Jewish world would have heard of John the Baptist. He was in there going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Herods, these false kings that thought it was that they could be the king of the Jews, right? And they weren't even Jewish people. And it just chafed the Jews more than the Romans. Even Pontius Pilate, you know, he's a government guy. What are you going to do? He's just a whatever, heathen Gentile. But this guy is trying to pretend to be a Jew, and they're not even that. And they so poorly mistreat the Jews. Well, they knew about John the Baptist going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them to the point that one of the Herods actually took his head off, right? And so he's well known and somebody that they would all look up to and all follow after. 
a righteous guy, John the Baptist. So Paul brings this into his message. After John first preached before his coming, speaking of Jesus' coming, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, again, he used David as an example that we should follow. Now he's using John the Baptist as an example we would follow. And in those days, there would be teachers, rabbis, and they would, follow, they would get disciples who would follow after them. And sometimes this would get abused that the teacher would, uh, because they kind of lorded it over them, have the disciples do all kinds of terrible things as their little pet slaves, so to speak. But the Jews got wind of it, and so they kind of put some general cultural rules in there that if you attach yourself to a rabbi, to a teacher, that you are, should be treated with a certain modicum of decency, not like you're just average slave. And so one of the things a disciple would never do would be to reach down and untie those nasty thongs that held those sandals onto those super dirty feet. That was just the grossest of gross things to do. And, and here, John the Baptist, who everybody held in highest esteem, says, as much as you might think I'm something special, I don't even attain to the level where I can reach and touch his sandals, and undo those straps. I'm not even qualified to do that. I'm lower than the, the lowest of slaves. And so they're starting to hear these type of things that this Jesus that God sent, that the seed of David, the promised one, much more exalted than John the Baptist is where he's going with all of that. Not worthy to lose. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, so now he's appealing to their heritage, their, their genealogy, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on up the tree. Men and brethren, sons of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. You heard it here. I brought it. That's what I came here to do. I wanted to tell you about your salvation. God is your salvation. In fact, Yahweh is your salvation. In fact, in Hebrew... Yahweh is salvation, is the name Yeshua, Jesus, okay? So it's almost a play on words here, but I brought you your salvation. His name is salvation. <laughs> His name is Jesus, okay? Uh, verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, and this isn't they didn't know about Him, but they didn't take time to understand Him, to experience Him, to really process what he said he was doing. They did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets. So they didn't listen to Jesus, and they didn't listen to the Scriptures. They didn't know him, which are read every Sabbath. They're without excuse, but they didn't bother to put it to heart, have fulfilled them in condemning him, because the prophets and the Scriptures said that Messiah would die. You can read that in Psalm 22, a uh, description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 700 years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 53, which we, or Isaiah 53, we talk about in such great detail, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, where Messiah is crucified for the, for the, the world, okay? So you could have read it in your scriptures, and you fulfilled them by condemning them. You should pay better attention to the Bible, guys. That's what he's saying. 
It already told what's going to happen. And you had it every Saturday, every Sabbath. It was explained to you. And here they went and did it anyways. At least that's what they did in Jerusalem. You guys aren't from Jerusalem. You're from Antioch, Pisidia. I'm here to tell you about this, but don't make the same mistake. Verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Okay, that base, just vulgar, vigilante, mob violence, right? You could liken it to the KKK or the BLM. I don't care which side of the tree you want to swing from. It's wicked. It's wrong when we fall into that rage and violence. But that's what they did, and that's what he's explaining. That's what happened in Jerusalem, um, that he should be put to death. Verse 29, when, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, and the Bible is full of prophecy of Jesus Christ and his coming to the world, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, uh, riding uh, on the colt uh, uh, of a donkey, and all these different prophecies. You should have known them. They had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, including His crucifixion. It was all there. You read it every Saturday. Then they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in the tomb. Verse 30, and here it is. This is it right here. But God. But God, you did this, you did this, you did that, you wicked person. What are you thinking right now? What did you do last night? You don't want to tell anybody? I get it. You're all guilty. You're all sinners. You're all worthy of death. But God, but God, that's why we're here today. But God, but God sent his son to die in our place that we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven, we can be set free, we can be adopted as children of God, heaven bound. But God, but God raised him from the dead. That's the heart of the gospel. This is, this is, this is gospel yeah, ground zero 101. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. I bring you there. There's, there's dozens of places to find it in the scriptures, but this is just succinct. It's right there. Write it down in the fly leaf of your Bible if you don't already have it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the gospel in a nutshell. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He goes on to say, and he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and the twelve. After that, he's seen by over 500 brethren at once. And then he says, then the apostle James saw him, and then I saw him even myself, one born out of season. Paul writes that, I saw him risen from the dead. It's a fact of ancient history. It's not contested in any historical writing. In fact, historical writings from people adverse to Judaism that didn't like the Christians, the, the Romans and the Greeks and, and the people of their day, they couldn't do anything but acknowledge. Yep, there was this lay rabbi, this itinerant pastor, this carpenter went around telling the world that he was the Son of God. And that he brought salvation. And for that message, they crucified him. And then he walked right out of that grave. And that was the story 2,000 years ago. And it's still the story, uncontested. And it stands. 
but God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. Verse 32, and we declare to you the glad tidings, <laughs> that promise which was made to the fathers, the promise of Messiah, the promise of deliverer, the promise of salvation, the promise of forgiveness of sin and bringing, being brought back home to God. That glad tidings is that word euangelion. In the Greek, you know it better as the evangel, and then you add on a suffix, the evangelize, evangelism, evangelical. It's the good tidings, the good news, the gospel. And that's what they said. We declare to you the gospel, you, uh, the good tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. That's what I'm here for. That's what I stood up for. You, we pulled the pin and now, boom, it's here. It's in the room. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, that He's raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, He's going to go on to quote other things from the Scripture to support it. Today, you are, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. That's out of Psalm 2-7. That, in fact, the Bible told them way back in the book of Psalms, the Son of God would come and live amongst them. Uh, that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? Verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead and no more returned to corruption, he has spoken this. And so he's saying, I gave you my son, and then he did not stay in the grave. He did not die. That word for corruption is decay. He didn't decay, okay, in the grave. He came out of that grave is the point he's making, and he's using the Old Testament to prove it. He says, and he raised him up from the dead, no more to return for corruption, for he spoke in thus, this is out of Isaiah 55, 3, I will give you the sure mercies of David, or the sure blessings, the sure promises of David. Well, what are those promises of David? It says right here, therefore he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, 10, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will not allow your Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, to see corruption. He will not decay. He will not die. He will ever live. It says in verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his father and saw corruption. He decayed. That's what happened. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. And so this is the message Paul is giving them, that Jesus lives. He's alive. The deliverer that said he would die in your place, cleanse you of your sins, rose from the grave, stamped it, validated it. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. Verse 38, therefore, now it's application time. What are you going to do with it? Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. He preached forgiveness of sins. You're all sinners. You need a Savior. I'm the Savior. Accept what I am doing on your behalf, paying a debt that you can't pay, shedding my blood in your place on the cross of Calvary, that if you say, I believe it and receive it, then you become a child of God. And everyone who believes is justified. Quick way to remember justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you. The blood of Jesus Christ, when God looks at you and me, He sees a justified soul. 
This is how we were able to say a chapter back, Barnabas is a good man. In Christ, he's a new creation, and through the lens of Christ, God sees us in that finished work for which we were created. So you are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Try as you might, you can't work your way to heaven. There is no stairway to heaven. I don't care what Led Zeppelin says, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Verse 40, beware therefore, okay, there's a warning that goes along with this. Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophet come upon you. And now he's going to speak out of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet that preached to the nation of Israel just prior to, or not the nation of Israel, to Judah just prior to them going into captivity in Babylon. And he was warning them, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You guys are going to go to jail. You're going to have 70 years of time out, and you're going to come under the submission of this super idolatrous people. And so he's warning them. And in Habakkuk, in, verse, in chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 5, uh, he says, Behold, you despisers. You, you want to be like the people in Jerusalem? Who, who crucified him? This is what Habakkuk says. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. You don't get it. You can't wrap your hand around it. You haven't taken the time to study. You're in the synagogue every Saturday. The prophets have said it. Jesus has said it. Everybody's told you, and you, you reject it, and you want to crucify him and go on your way. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Even though here we are telling you right now, even though here I am right now telling you that your sins have been forgiven. 2,000 years on the cross of Calvary, they were nailed up there with those nails that nailed Jesus to the cross. When they took him down, your sins were buried. When he came out, he left them there. And you are free. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Because that's what I'm here to declare to you this day, that Jesus lives. How do I know He lives? He lives in me. He lives in you. He lives in this church. Amen? Worship team, come on up. So we can see clearly, Paul brings the gospel here in this promise. I love what Habakkuk goes on to say in chapter 2. At verses 2 through 4, you're very familiar with this. He starts off telling them, uh, look, at, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. How many of you guys, <laughs> between last Sunday and this Sunday, have watched the news? Do you get discouraged? Does it like drag you down? You look at this wicked world swirling around a cesspool. It's not just America. It's planet Earth. It's going through serious labor pangs. I, I, I seriously think Jesus is coming soon, right? But you watch this, and you watch all this wickedness, and that's what Habakkuk was saying to the people of Judah, and it applies to us today. But this is what Habakkuk says. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is not, not yet for an appointed time, but in the end it will speak and not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. 
There is an end to this. There is an end to the trials, the suffering, the tribulation, the world just going down, down, down. He says, verse 4 of Habakkuk, chapter 2, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And that's the story here. Faith, trust, believe. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven, you're a child of God, and you're heaven-bound? If you can have that in the middle of a world going amok, you can have a, a testimony. You can let your light shine that the world would look at it and say, wow, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. A uh, couple things, and I'm going to finish up. <laughs> Just as we sit here this morning, and we look at different things, and I'm getting ready to go on up, as I've told you to, uh, the men's advance, right, the winter camp, and I'll be speaking there. I'm going to be speaking out of Second Peter chapter 3. Everybody that's going to be a speaker there is going to speak, be speaking about prophets and prophecies in the Bible for these last days. And in Second Peter 3, we see that Peter says the world's all going to burn. It's going to melt with a fervent heat. And he comes to this fu fundamental point. What manner of persons ought you to be, therefore, in godliness and holy conduct, looking for and hastening the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? What do we do in the midst of wicked days? What do we do in the midst of the world falling to pieces? We stand. We shine. We live well. We live a life of peace and joy and hope in the midst of this perverse and crooked generation. And you stand out like a sore thumb. And people are desperate. They're hungry. They just want what you've got. But if you're running around like all the other rats in the maze, why would they even bother asking? So we are to live well. We are to live good. In Peter, he opens up that, talking about people who scoff and they mock. The world goes on just like it always did. You know, you say there's a flood. There was no flood. There's no evolution. There's none of this. And Peter concludes in all of these things. You say that yesterday is the same as today, and it's always going to be the same forever. And the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus is yesterday, today, and forever. But what we know is that things don't go on and on and on. There's an end to all this. And it's a glorious end for the children of God. And that's why we want to get everybody in the boat, as many as we can. But in all of this, I, I came across an interesting little thing. Riley kind of mentioned it, and so I did a little digging into it. Riley last night, Riley White. But some comparisons from 2020 to 2024, from that year to this year, as you lay them up on top of each other, and you say, oh, Jesus isn't coming back soon. That's, that's a plague that's affecting the church. Ever since COVID, 2020, lockdowns, and all this kind of stuff, this weird virus has infected the church. A lot of churches are backing off the rapture. They're afraid. Maybe it's not true. It's like, did this change? It's, I know I had this Bible before 2020. It's the same one. The rapture's still in it. 
I don't know why you would back away from that. But people are afraid. They don't want to get out. They don't want to be bold. They don't want to let their light shine. They don't want their hope out. They don't want people to know that uh, <laughs> they've got a reason to be happy, okay? And it's so weird in the church. And, the, and different viruses infected the church, like preterism. Big $5 word, I've talked about it a couple days. Churches that are saying that all the prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled in the first 70 years of the first century. And now, now we're living in the millennium, in the age of Christ, and that everything is just going according to God's plan. And I'm thinking, I don't need to read the Bible. I can just look around and go, this ain't the millennium. This ain't it, Right? And, and all these weird things that people are doing, they're afraid. They're afraid of getting out and sharing Jesus. They're afraid of getting out and letting their light shine. And we can't be those people. Look at 2020 and 2024. Let me give you a couple of things. Uh, 2020, 2024, both leap years. It's just repeating, just like it always is. Every four years, we're just in that, we're in that repeat cycle. It's like Groundhog's Day. Everybody see the movie Groundhog's Day? The guy wakes up every day. It's the same day again. Speaking of Groundhog's Day, Poxitani Phil, 2020, predicted an early spring. He did it again this year. He doesn't often do it, but are we in this spin-dry cycle? I don't know what's going on. 2020, Super Bowl, 49ers, Chiefs. 2020, presidential election, Trump, Biden, it's all, this is all, and people are just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know about that rapture thing. I'm going to put that in the back closet. Are you kidding me? He is closer today than he's ever been. We have more and more reason to be more and more excited. Do you know that he loves you with an everlasting love? Do you know that he's in heaven praying for you? Do you know that you are the bride of Christ? And do you know what it's like between the time that you propose and that you consummate that wedding. You wait. You're so excited. This Wednesday, February 14th, will be the 34th anniversary of me asking Cheryl to be my Valentine. It gets so much better, though, right? That was great, and she did. She was my Valentine. But it wasn't until September 20 that we said our vows and we're married. You know how many days it is between February 14th of 1990 to September 24th of 1990? Any mathematicians in here? Let me tell you because I know. <laughs> I counted every day. She's my bride. We're going to get married. I can't wait. 200 22 days. And we said, I do. And you know what? That wasn't the end. That's even just the beginning. And so we're living in a world where Christ is coming soon. And we should be so excited, so looking forward to Him, so hastening the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can know this, He's doing the same thing. You are the apple of His eye. He can't get you off His heart. He can't get you off his hands. He loves you with an everlasting love. And we need to live like it. We need to live as children of God. Amen? Amen. Father, I want to thank you for this sermon borrowed from Stephen, borrowed from Peter, borrowed from Paul. But your word, through and through, 
in the heart of it all? We see you, Jesus. We know you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We hunger for you, Jesus. We're ready for you, Jesus. And we pray now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would just ignite a flame in us that would not go out, that would draw people to you as days grow dark, knowing that the light the morning star is about to rise and shine forever. We say this in sure, fast hope, knowing, trusting, believing that all you say is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 God bless you all. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.